Father in heaven, as we come to you now to open the book of Daniel once again to study, Lord, we realize that we cannot understand anything if you don't send us the Holy Spirit. So Lord, in a mighty way, I pray that you pour out the Holy Spirit upon us in this room, fill our minds and give us wisdom and understanding to understand the deep and hidden secrets that you've put here in Daniel chapter 2. Help us to see the relevance to our time as well, and may you give us urgency for the time that we're living in. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to recap quickly, we're partway through Daniel chapter 2, and we, we're at the stage where Daniel has already in, uh, given the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, okay? The dream, that statue, which its head of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet part of iron, part of clay. So Daniel, let's go to Daniel chapter 2. After Daniel gives the dream, he says in verse 36, this is the dream. He doesn't ask Nebuchadnezzar whether it is the dream or not. He says it is the dream. And he moves on with confidence because God has given him the dream. And when God gives us something, we shouldn't be asking men's approval. With confidence, we ought to move on and saying, this is exactly what the word says, not what do you think. This is what it says. Anything outside of what you, th- anything that is answered back about what you think is an opinion. But this is the dream. And verse 36, it says, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So Daniel now is about to jump into the interpretation after he gives a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 37. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Verse 38, And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So who's the head of gold? King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, In verse 37, it says that God of heaven has given thee a kingdom. It's very interesting the way that Daniel words this. You see, when we go back to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, rightly so that Daniel says this. In verse 2, he says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So just as Israel was allowed to be conquered, or Jerusalem was allowed to be conquered by Babylon, it was not because of any military strength that Nebuchadnezzar had, but the fact that God gave it. Whatever God says, whatever God does, no man can interfere. If God gives it, He'll give it. No man can stop it. But here, it's very interesting that how a pagan king has been blessed by God. Not in the sense of spiritual blessing, but a physical blessing. Helping us to understand that every good and perfect gift comes from above. You see, God gave, or the God of heaven in verse 37 of chapter 2, has given thee a kingdom, and not just a kingdom, but power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And head, when you look at the head, it symbolizes what? What is the most important part? Yes, the heart, I mean, of the body, what is the most important part? It may be the heart, but really the head is the most important, the mind. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, dealing with the mind. And so the mind is the one that controls the whole body. And on top of that, the head is the highest. It's the authority, it's where by which everything is governed. Just as Jesus says, I am the head and you are the body. Right? The church is the body. It says that in Ephesians. But, number one, when, first off, the gold is rightly used to represent Babylon. Why? Because Babylon really extravagantly, extensively used gold in its furniture, in its furnishings, in its idolatrous statues. And that's why we looked at the last lesson, why God gave a dream of an image and very relevant to Nebuchadnezzar being the first of course head of gold immediately he could he could acquaint himself 
with his dream that God is giving him. One of the historians write that there was more gold than dust there. That was how extravagantly they used gold. And there has not been a nation since that has even come close to equaling the glory that Babylon had. And as you know, it had one of the seven wonders of the world. What was that? The Hanging Gardens. He brought all this stuff in just to build this garden for his wife. There was no other kingdom that ever came close to its extravagance. Now, Babylon reigned from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. Some say 606, 605, give one or two years, we're not going to lose our eternal salvation. But around that time, okay, 605 B.C., before Christ, to 539. Remember, keep these dates in mind, very important. We need them for chronology. So... At this point in time, we know that the head of gold represents who? King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? We don't know that it's Babylon, but we do know by reading the next verse. Let's read it. Verse 39. And after these shall arise another kingdom. There you go. So we know that already the characteristics that Daniel praised God of is exactly what is being revealed through this dream. He set up kings and removeth kings. And so when we read here in verse 39, and there shall, after thee shall rise another kingdom, we know that the chest and arms of silver is another kingdom, not another king. Okay? So it's a succession of kingdoms. And that's why we know. Not from verse 30, um, 38 do we know that, but from verse 39. It says, After thee shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth so we know that the elements are representing kingdoms not kings but moreover you're not a king without a kingdom so it doesn't matter what you say you need to have a kingdom behind you to call yourself a king so it's not a succession of kings but a succession of kingdoms that we're seeing already in verse 39 but it says another kingdom inferior to thee now you got to imagine Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this dream and he realizes that it's very relevant because he understands the image and he sees the head of gold. And of course, he's already now puffed up because Daniel says, you're the head of gold. Wow. But next he says, you're going to be conquered by a kingdom. Not just that you you know, he rubs salt into the wound. Not just you're going to be conquered, but you're going to be conquered by a kingdom inferior to you. So... We know that since Babylon, there has never been a kingdom like that. They say that the, the walls of Babylon were so thick that two chariots could ride abreast on it. It could never have been conquered from without. People laid siege to it, but there was a river running right through. They were self-sufficient in crops and food, and they had enough military power to sustain themselves and withhold off enemies. And we know that Babylon was not conquered simply by just warfare in that sense. But God allowed it to happen. Why? We'll understand it in the future. But what kingdom came next? Let's go to Daniel chapter 5. What kingdom came after Babylon? Daniel chapter 5 and verse 28. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 28. This chapter records the actual fall of Babylon which we will get to in the near future. But it also records the kingdom that came and conquered it. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 28, the Bible says, Perez, thy kingdom, speaking to the king of Babylon then, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So who came next? The chest and arms of silver, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And rightly so, Medes and Persians, they were two actual separate countries but they're formed together by an alliance of kings. That's why there's two arms. Medes, Persians. Keep this in mind, the two arms, as we continue forward in prophecy. You need to remember this for the future. So the next king that came, Medes and Persians, were certainly inferior. They did not have the military power to actually conquer Babylon in that sense. But the reason why Babylon was conquered, number one, God gave it, but secondly, they were taken by surprise. The river Euphrates was dried up and they came marching through. 
And Medo-Persia, this inferior kingdom, reigned from 539 BC to 331 BC. 539 BC to 331 BC. I want you to note that the length of the kingdoms in terms of how long they're ruling is getting longer. Note this pattern, okay? But let's move on. <clears throat> Another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth, that kingdom was none other than the kingdom of Greece. Now, how do we know that? Let's stay in Daniel. Let's go to chapter 8. How do we know that from the Bible, Greece came after Medo-Persia? Daniel chapter 8, and we're starting in verse 20 and also 21. Now, Daniel has a vision in this dream, in, in this chapter, he a vision or a dream, and he sees a rough goat and a, a ram. And the rough goat or the he-goat runs against the ram and the rough goat is the one that wins. Now, in verse 20, it tells us, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, or what we would say the chest of arms and the chest and arms of silver. But then it says in verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So we know that from the Bible, the next kingdom that came after Medo-Persia was that thigh, belly and thighs of bronze, which was Greece. And the first king, of course, was none other than Alexander the Great, who, by his 32nd year of life, conquered the then known world. As he stood there conquering his final kingdom, I believe it was India, he stood there and wept. A few days later, he was invited to a party and twice drank I read six quarts of wine, equivalent to uh, twice, so 12 quarts all up. And he died, uh, he died thereof 11 days later of a fever. So Greece came on the scene with one of the greatest kings ever, or generals ever, to rule the then known world. But he passed off in a matter of a short time. But yet the kingdom of Greece still existed for quite a bit of time. They reigned from... 331 BC to 168 BC. Similar time period of Medo-Persia. So that was Greece. But note, in verse 39 it says, And after thee shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. You see, these kingdoms are not just any random kingdoms that God has picked out of the blue. There are kingdoms that rule the world. So these kingdoms are a succession of kingdoms that have come and gone, but each one of them has one similar characteristic. They ruled the then known world. That was, this is the slant of the kingdoms that we're looking at. God does not just pick any kingdom out just to fit the mold. But since Daniel's day, there has been five major world kingdoms. Because... We're going to see that, of course, the rock comes after that. And that in itself, being a kingdom too. But we'll leave that for a bit later. Now let's move on, verse 40. Verse 40. <clears throat> and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now, the fourth kingdom is none other than Rome. You can read that in your history books. And not necessarily is Rome mentioned conquering Greece. But we know from the Bible that Rome was actually a world kingdom. Let's go to Luke, the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2. We know that at least we can back up from Scripture that Rome was a world empire. Okay? Luke chapter 2, and starting with verse 1. Luke chapter 2, and verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be, what? Taxed. Now, you can't tax the whole world unless you own the whole world. 
Now, obviously, that was not the whole literal world then, but it was the whole then known world. Now, who reigned? I mean, what time period was this when the Caesars reigned? It was time period of the Romans. That's the only time we find Caesars. Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was the one that taxed the whole world, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And so we know that Rome then was a world power. In order to tax the whole world, you need to be a world power. So this legs of iron, if we go back to Daniel chapter 2, was none other than Rome. Rome. But I want you to note this. Let's go back to verse 40 of Daniel chapter 2. It says, The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Certainly Rome, the, or the Romans, had the greatest military strength. They had warfare tactics that had not been seen before. And that's why they were so effective in conquering. And they used weapons that nobody had seen before. Iron. Weapon armory and weapon... Uh, iron armory and iron swords and shields and things like this. The Greeks started to introduce the, the use of iron armor. But Romans were the ones that were really effectively used it the most because the Greeks still used bronze and also iron. So the interchange between the two. But Romans were the ones that were used iron the most. Cannons came out from that as well. All sorts of things came out from Rome. But it says, The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. Now note this. It says, Iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. That word breaketh there, if you look that up in the original Hebrew, and the word subdueth, they are given the understanding or connotation of similar characteristics. What does it mean? understanding of crush now when you crush things you're either doing it two ways one of two ways with your hands or with your feet now this is going to become important as we look into the future but understand this meaning first okay and that's exactly the way Romans fought when they conquered cities they crushed them literally they raised the whole city down to the ground as if it never existed crushed them out so, the way that, or the understanding that this is given is the way that the Romans conquered people through war. But on top of that, it says, And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Coming into Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The first time the word bruise is ever used in the Bible. Genesis 3.15 Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first time the word bruise is ever used in the Bible. And here, this is after the fall of Adam and Eve, and God is dealing with Adam and Eve, and He's already told them what is going to come about of their sins. But in verse 15, He turns to the serpent. Verse 14, He's already spoken to the serpent, but He says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between her, thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This verse is typically used as a plan of salvation or what we see here that is prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, Genesis 3.15 tells us that Jesus Christ was to be crucified in the future. And if we link it up with the verse in Daniel 2 and verse 40 where the Romans will bruise, we know from history even that the Romans are the ones that crucified Jesus Christ. But if you come with me to Isaiah, chapter 53, how do we know this word bruise is actually used in conjunction with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? We can't go, typically it's used, we have to find Bible evidence that Genesis 3.15 is referring or pointing to that time when Jesus Christ would be bruised on the heel or would be crucified for us. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, the Bible says, But he, referring to Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. Transgression of what? Transgression of the law. He was wounded for our transgressions or for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus was bruised or crucified for our iniquities. 
And if we go to Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, we realize that these iniquities are our sins. So how was the Godhead in a sense of Jesus Christ bruised? He had to be crucified for our sins. And it was the Romans themselves that crucified Jesus, the Son of God. So already we're given a time framing each and every moment. And the Romans themselves, they ruled from 168 BC to 476 AD. The time framing of this is getting longer. 168 BC to 476 AD. 476 AD. Now let's move on. Let's read verses 41 to 43 of Daniel chapter 2. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with clay. So this is the next kingdom. But I want to ask you a question first. Now listen to this. How many verses is used to describe each element? Now the element gold, in its interpretation, how much description is actually given to it? How many verses? Hmm? Two. Two. Two verses are used to describe or interpret the element of gold. How about silver? Half a verse. Bronze? Half a verse as well. How about iron? One verse. And then lastly, iron and clay. How many verses is used to describe this kingdom? Three verses. God wants us to focus more on the feet of iron and clay. He's placed more emphasis, more description there saying, look, if you're gonna, if you want someone to focus on one more, one part more than another, you're gonna describe it more. You're gonna place more emphasis, and so that way, God is doing the same thing. He wants us to look more at the feet of iron or of clay. Certainly, Greece and Medo-Persia are not important. <laughs> Only half a verse is spent on them. Even gold, two verses, and even Rome, one verse, is not that much given. But here. The iron and clay is given three verses, showing a signifying us that is quite important for us to look at this, okay? So we're going to spend most of our time, the rest of this class, looking at the feet of iron and clay, and then we're going to finish off the chapter. But let's go back to verse 42. It says, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron. You see, this kingdom is different from all the others. All the others were just made of metal. But the feet are made of metal and of clay. I mean, if it was made of another metal, it would be all right. But clay is not even a metal. So there's a transition in this kingdom. This kingdom, above all other kingdoms, is different. That's the first thing that we note. In order to be able to rightly interpret and understand who this kingdom is, we have to know and understand the symbols that God is giving us. So first observation. This kingdom is different, it's diverse. It's not the same as all the other kingdoms that came before. It's a mixture of iron and also clay. All the other kingdoms were just made of one element, but this one's made up of metal and clay. And then continuing on, it says, but the kingdom shall what? Be divided. This whole image is referring to kingdoms, but yet it is embodied in this image. I want you to understand this for a moment. As, as we look at this, the image here that is given, but yet the interpretation is about what? Kingdoms. Now kingdoms are more what? Political. But the image is more what? Religious. We're getting an understanding already that we see uniting of church or religious and state, political. And I just want to bring out this observation now. I'm going to leave it here for now, but we're going to pick up with this again in a minute as we get into, as we read more of these verses, okay? 
But somehow God wants, to see, wants us to see the mingling of religious and political in this image. We haven't seen it so far in the head, the chest, the gold, the silver, the bronze, or the iron. There's been none of that so far. But I just want to bring this observation out. Now, when it says the kingdom shall be divided, Rome was certainly divided, okay? It wasn't destroyed. It wasn't conquered from without. No kingdom came next and conquered actual Rome. It was too powerful. But it was divided from within. Political strife. It was the Germanic tribes that came and just ripped the kingdom apart. And that is how Rome was conquered. But yet, when it says the kingdom shall be divided, it maintains the word kingdom as singular. If you look at verse 41, it says, Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom, singular. Verse 42, And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom. Even though it's made up of two elements, it looks like maybe two kingdoms are coming together, it's still singular, one kingdom. Just as Medo-Persia were two kingdoms, it's still called it one kingdom. So, even though it says it's divided, it's still united some way. But how is it divided? Because the Germanic tribes and came and ripped it apart. The ten tribes that came, that came out of Rome. We'll get into more detail of that in the future as well. But, yes, this kingdom is divided. Now, let's continue on in verse 41. But there shall be in it of the strength of iron. So even though the kingdom is divided, yet the strength that it has is still maintained as the same strength that Rome had, if not more. But certainly, by adding the clay, it does not decrease in strength. You've got to understand that. So even though this feet look like it's weak because the foundation is clay, yet it still has the strength of iron. And then it says, For as much as thou sawest, the iron mixed with miry clay. So what we're seeing here is very interesting. Look at verse 41. It says there in the middle of the verse, the kingdom shall be divided. And at the end it says, Thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. But then we go on in verse 43. Whereas thou sowest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. Even as iron is what? Not mixed. Verse 41, it says they mix. And then verse 43, it says they don't mix. In what ways is iron and clay mixing, but yet in what ways is iron and clay not mixing? It seems like it's contradicting each other. Do you see that? In one, in one hand, it says they're mixing, but on the other hand, they're not. What is being mixed and what is not? Now let's look at this for a moment, okay? For as much thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. They mix, yet they don't mix. They mix in the way they have the military strength of the iron. But they don't mix in the way that the kingdom is divided, okay? They mix in the way that the military strength is still present and the clay has not weakened the iron. But yet they don't mix. Why? Because the kingdoms have been divided. Yet it's still what? One kingdom. How can it be divided, still have strength, but yet still be united? How is that possible? Come with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 17. Gives us understanding of how there can be separate kingdoms, but yet still one kingdom and still be united. How can they... Not mix, but still mix. Separate, but still united. Revelation chapter 17, and we're starting with verse 12. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12. It says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings, one hour with a beast. So we see how many kings? Ten kings. That means they're not mixing, right? They're all separate kings. If you're a king, you have to have a kingdom behind you. But yet, did you see the plural go into the singular? Which have received no kingdom as yet. One kingdom. Just as we see the feet of iron and of clay is one kingdom, but there's still iron, there's still clay, there's still 
not cleaving, they're not mixing, but yet they're still united. How? Verse 13. These have what? One mind. So they may not mix in the sense that there'll be one literal kingdom like we, we don't have that today. There's no one kingdom that rules the whole world and it's all just called Babylon. Different countries, different kings, presidents, or whatever you may call them. But yet it says they're united in what way? They have one mind, one thought, one purpose, one motive, even though they're not mixing. Okay? So as we look at Daniel chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 41 to 43, when they're not mixing, but yet mixing, they're not mixing the way that they're still separate. They still have their own governments. And that's exactly what happened after the 10 Germanic tribes came. They split up into different kingdoms. And ever since then, after 476 AD, there has not been one kingdom that has ruled the entire world. But it's going to come again because the feet, remember, what does this image represent? World kingdoms, a succession of world kingdoms. So there's going to come. But how is this last world kingdom going to be established? By a unity of mind. Not so much unity through political one kingdom per se but a unity in mind. Now, I want to just look at this iron and clay for a moment. We saw that the religious and political entities, as we looked at the image with succession of kingdoms, okay? But now we're going to see it come out in a greater detail as we look at the iron and the clay. Now, what does the iron represent? Hmm? Rome. Legs of iron. So, really... Rome continued on into the feet. Rome continued on into the feet. But yet, it was combined with what? Clay. So we see now Rome in terms of the iron, legs of iron, the brass, the silver, the the gold, all these were political, strictly political kingdoms. So we know at least the political entity of Rome continued on into the feet. But what does the clay represent? Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. What does the clay represent? We're going to look at another text after this. Let's read this one first. Isaiah 64 verse 8. But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay. Who is speaking here? Isaiah. Lord, Jesus Christ is our Father and we are the clay. You are the potter and we all are the work of Thy hand. So somehow Isaiah is saying, God, You are our potter. Mold us and make us however you would want us to be. Clay. But look, come with me also to Jeremiah 18 and verse 6. This will make it clearer as to what clay is. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 6. Jeremiah 18 verse 6. O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. So what did the clay represent there? The house of Israel, all God's people. So God's saying, look, I want to be your potter. Let me mold you and make you into my own image. The image that we lost from the beginning because of sin. So God is saying, I want you to come back to the original image of God. He wants us to be His people again. Now, there's no literal Israel today in a sense of God's people, but God has His people in what? Churches. Since Israel as a nation ceased to become God's people, He transferred His people, God's people, from nation to churches. And that's why we see in Revelation this talking about churches. There's a transferring of this understanding. So what does the clay really represent? God's people. What did the iron represent again? Political entities of Rome. So what are we seeing here in the feet? We're seeing a mingling of what? Church and state. And remember, it says that they will mix, but yet they won't mix. In what way is church and state mixing? They're combining. They come together. 
But what happens when we see church and state come together? Result is persecution. Keep this in mind. Church plus state equals persecution. You always have to remember this. Now, is this some theory that we brought out of the thin air? No. Let's look at an example. Crucifixion of Jesus. Who crucified him? Romans. Who instigated it? The Jews. But who was the main one that instigated it? Judas, yes. But who, stood, who had to be called up from his sleep in the middle of the night? The high priest. What was his name? Caiaphas. The high priest. The first person that came across to judge Jesus was a high priest. And then they sent him to who? Pilate. And then Pilate sent him to Herod, and then Herod sent him back to Pilate. So we see here that in order for the Jews to fill out their plan or their, their prerogative to get Jesus on the cross or to get rid of him, they needed the help of the state. No matter what happened, they could not get Jesus on the cross if the Romans could not find any fault in them, in him. So we saw a mingling of church, Caiaphas on one hand, and then Pilate and Herod on the other hand, coming together to put Jesus on the cross. But who actually got him on the cross ultimately? The people. Keep this in mind, okay? Because we're going to see church and state coming together. But what, where is the persecution really going to result from? The majority of the people. The majority of the people that cry out. So therefore, religious plus political equals what? Persecution. Keep that in mind, okay? Now only Christ can really combine church and state effectively. Let's look at a few examples, okay? Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Only Christ is the only one that can combine in himself and invest the authority for others to have church and state together. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Let's go there. Acts 5, 31. The Bible says, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In verse 31 it says, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a what? To be a prince. Is that religious or political? Political. And a savior. Is that religious or political? Religious. So we're seeing a combination of church and state there. Now come with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Only Jesus can unite religious with political. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, is first begotten of the dead religious or political? Religious. But it says what? Prince of the kings of the earth. Political. Jesus himself has combined church and state in himself. But yet in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 1, we read this. And hath made us, what? Kings, is that religious political? Political. And, and, and what? Priests. Religious. So only Jesus can combine church at state in any given point of time. Let's look at a few more. Revelation 15, 3. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou what? King of saints. King of saints is more political, but yet we look at the word Lord God Almighty, that's more religious. And one last one, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16. 
Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16. The Bible says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings being more political, Lord of Lords being more religious. So only Jesus Christ can combine religious and political. But yet this kingdom at the end of time that exists after 476 AD, that means somehow it's existing in our day. Because what comes next is a stone. So we're seeing that this kingdom, the feet, is going to combine religious and political. And what's going to happen? It results in persecution. But only Jesus can have religious and political and not result in persecution. Now notice, let's go back to verse 41 of Daniel chapter 2. I want you to see this transition. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 41. Keep in mind that the clay is related to what more? It's related to more religious. It's related to God's people, the church. Now in verse 41 it says, Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of what type of clay? Potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with what? Miry clay. In verse 41, just in that verse alone, it transitions from potter's clay down to what? Miry clay. Now is there a difference? Yes. What is potter's clay? Clay that basically can be molded. It can be molded. Is moldable. And that's the sort of clay that you want to use when you want to make a vase or you want to make some sort of clay object. It's moldable. But yet miry clay, if you look it up in the original, it means sticky clay, mud, or dirt to be swept away. Miry clay means sticky clay, mud, or dirt to be swept away which means it's good for nothing. Just trample on it. Okay? But if you come with me to Psalms chapter 40, the word miry clay is actually used here. Psalms chapter 40 and verse 2. The word miry clay is also used here, which will give us an understanding of what is coming out from potter's clay down to miry clay. What does this miry clay represent? And what does the potter's clay represent? Psalms 40 verse 2 it says, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. It says He brought me out of a what? A horrible pit out of miry clay. So what is miry clay? It's really a horrible pit. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at the meaning of Babylon, if you look at the meaning of Babylon, it's, it, it's, it means mingle, mix, confusion. That's the meaning of Babylon. Very similar meaning to that word miry clay. Mingle, mix, confusion. Therefore, the word miry clay is very closely related to Babylon. It has characteristics of Babylon. And as you know, that's why I mentioned the head, the head controls the whole body. And really, Babylon has existed all the way down to our time. Just as Medo-Persia has, so has Greek and so has Rome. Certainly Rome more than any other because the feet is made of iron, Rome, and clay. So the characteristics that we find from the beginning of this image exist all the way down to our time, but especially what? Babylon. Come with me to Revelation chapter 17. I want to show you this. We were already there before looking at the unity of kingdoms, which closely relates to what we were trying to get an understanding of mixing and not mixing, separate kingdoms but yet united in mind. But in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 5, this is what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 5. Revelation 17 and verse 5. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. So it mentions Babylon again, but this same chapter talks about an understanding of mixing and not mixing, which we're seeing also in Daniel 2. 
So it would probably do us well to go back and study the 17th chapter of Revelation in conjunction with Daniel 2, especially what? The iron and the clay. It'd help us to understand maybe a bit better Daniel chapter 2. But that chapter is for another time and for another place. But we're just seeing the relation of Daniel to Revelation, how these two books complement each other. And we're going to be turning to this book a lot more in the future. But let's continue on. Now, if you go back to Psalms chapter 40 and verse 2, it says that he took us out of that horrible pit, out of the miry clay, but what did he do then? What happened after that? When he took us out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay, it says, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. <clears throat> so Jesus takes us out of the horrible pit, the miry clay, and he establishes our feet upon a rock. Now, who is that rock? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. We only have a few minutes left, so I need to speed up here a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, and did, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So when a person is taken out from the horrible pit of miry clay, he's set upon a rock, he's set upon Jesus Christ. Okay? So... <clears throat> Now, if we're set upon Jesus Christ, what's the purpose of Jesus? Matthew one twenty one. that name Jesus means Savior from our sins. So when we're set upon Jesus Christ, we're being saved or taken out of what? Sin. So that miry clay somehow represents sin. So it's going from what type of clay? Potter's clay down to miry clay. It's degrading in value. So if we're not established in Jesus Christ, we're not established with our feet firm upon the rock, then we're still in our sins. So that miry clay represents sin. Now in the beginning, the clay is good, but at the end of that verse, of verse 41 of Daniel chapter 2, it becomes miry clay. We see a degrading of value over time. Basically, what we're seeing here is that a good and righteous man that has established his feet upon the rock can, it's possible to go back to the depths of sin. How do we know this? Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Here's one example. A person that has been saved and is a good and righteous man, they could, after they've established their feet upon the rock, can go back into miry clay. You see, you cannot have your feet upon the rock and be in miry clay at the same time. 40, uh, Psalms 40 verse 2 establishes that very clearly. But we're not going from miry clay into the rock. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 41, we're going from what? Potter's clay to or down to miry clay, degrading in value. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy what? first love. It's possible for those that have the first love to leave it. It's possible to be in a righteous state at one point in time in your life, but still be degraded down to a value of sin again. But I see that the most greatest application is found in this text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're looking at verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. The application of the understanding of this potter's clay becoming miry clay. Initially, it was good clay that was molded, could be molded by the Spirit of God into a righteous man, but then it becomes miry clay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, or degrading in value, and that man of what? Sin be revealed the son of perdition. So what's happening? That miry clay representing sin, being taken out of the horrible pit, and then must needs come a falling away first. Falling away in what? Value possibly? Moral values? So it started off with good intentions, potter's clay, but then becomes 
Marikali. There must come a falling away first before the man of sin can be revealed. Let's move on. Lastly, I just want to bring your attention to something in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 43, where it says, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. They shall mingle, they shall try to come together, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with miry clay. So we're seeing, once again, mixing and not mixing. It's repeated twice in 41 and also 43. And this word cleave is used in connotation with marriage. So somehow we're seeing that this, this iron and clay, they don't, don't mix through marriage somehow. But yet, so they're not able to unite. But yet somehow they're still able to unite in another way. Unity in the mind, but no unity in marriage. Let's move on and we'll finish off this chapter. Verses 44 and 45. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain. He's repeating what he said to the king after he told the dream. But then he says, and the interpretation thereof, sure. King, if that dream is certain, if that's what you dreamt, the interpretation is certainly going to pass. And what comes after? The feet of iron and clay? The kingdom of God. But how is it represented? Verse 45, For as much as thou sawest, that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Now what mountain is this? Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 26. Let's go there real quickly. Isaiah 65 and verse 26. What does this mountain represent? Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 26. Isaiah 65 and verse 26, the Bible says, sorry, verse 25, Isaiah 65 verse 25, the Bible says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. So Isaiah 65, 25, it says there at the end, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy what? Mountain, saith the Lord. And this is referring to God's kingdom at the end of time. So somehow this stone that's cut out in Daniel chapter 2 is cut out from the mountain. It comes out from God's kingdom and it comes and hits the feet of iron of clay. And it destroys everything though. The whole image is destroyed even though it hits the feet. What does this stone represent? Come with me to John chapter 8 verses 3 through 7. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 7. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 7, starting in verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him, Jesus, a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Jesus, we found her in the very act of adultery. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And verse 7, you see, notice, the Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery and they says, well, we should stone her. That's what Moses' law says, okay? And what do you say, Jesus? Jesus turns around, he starts writing on the ground, and then he says in verse 7, So when they continued asking him, asking him what? Jesus, what should we do? You tell us how we should treat this woman. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So who is able to cast a stone at her? Those that does not have sin. So when we see a stone hurling down to the image of this um, one, this image in Daniel 2. Who is that? 
That's Jesus. What does it represent? His kingdom. And why is He able to use a stone as a representation to destroy this image? Because He's the only one without sin. And this stone, in this sense of the woman who is caught in adultery, it was judgment upon her. And of course, we see Daniel's name means what? God is my judge or judge of God. So we're seeing that God is judging the kingdoms and we're in this time now when the stone is about to hit the feet. Who is the one that will come? Jesus Christ Himself. Why is He able to come? Because He is without sin. And why is He doing that? Because He's judging. Judgment. Lines up exactly with the theme of the book of Daniel. So, Jesus Christ is coming and His second king his second coming and he's coming with his kingdom and with it he's bringing judgment as well where are we according to the image we're certainly not in Rome we're not in Babylon Medo Persia or Greece we have to be in the feet because the next kingdom that comes is Jesus' kingdom and we're not there yet so somehow we're in the feet now I want to read you this quote found in first volume of the testimonies 1T page 360 to 361. 1T, page 360 to 361. Our position in the image of Nebuchadnezzar is represented by the toes, in a divided state and of a crumbling material that will not hold together. Prophecy shows us that the great day of God is right upon us. It hasteth greatly. If there's anything that we can learn from Daniel 2 is that Jesus Christ is coming very soon. Why? Because we're living in the toes and could I say even the toenails of time. We're living right at the edge of time. We're seeing signs fulfilled fast before us that Jesus Christ is coming again. Certainly when Daniel was relating this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, it had no relevance to him because he was at the head. He didn't care about the stone coming, but yet he realized the image was going to be destroyed. But if there was ever a time that we had to be urgent, it's today. No, not the people back in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Because why? What's coming next? Second coming. And when Jesus comes with that stone, He's going to judge. And those that are not righteous are going to be crushed under the stone and it's going to be all blown away, the chaff. But let us finish Daniel chapter 2 and we'll finish for today. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46, Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an, an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal the secret. You see, Daniel was the what? Man who gave the prophecy and interpreted it, but it was from God, of course. And this is exactly what prophecy does. It ought to bring glory back to God. If prophecy and you're teaching and you're preaching it and prophecy brings glory to you, you're not doing it the right way. Because people should react in a way like what Nebuchadnezzar did. It seemed like he was worshiping with Daniel, but his response is not so. It says, of a truth it is your God is a God of God and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou, you, seeing that you could reveal the secret. The fact that we can rightly interpret prophecy shows us that we have a true God. And lastly, verse 48 and 49. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So as a result, Daniel was highly prospered because he gave interpretation and also gave the dream itself. And we shouldn't be looking for honor when we're given prophecy, okay? That is not a, the right application to be using here. But as a result, Nebuchadnezzar allowed him to be exalted. Understanding in a similar way how we will be in the future brought before kings, and governors, lawyers, those that are of high authority and high, high places. But what we do, we need to have first a connection with God and number two, be able to rightly interpret the prophecies.
because there are many interpretations out there and a lot of them are wrong we need to have a right interpretation of all the prophecies that we have so this is Daniel chapter 2 let us close with a word of prayer let's kneel Father in heaven Lord thank you so much for giving us a foundation in prophecy Lord thank you for your word and thank you especially for the book of Daniel and how it prophesies of the times to come in the future. Oh Lord, we realize that time is short. We see that the next kingdom that is going to come upon this world is yours. Help us, Lord, to be ready, that we may be able to be ready to help others to be prepared for your coming kingdom. Father, bless us out throughout the rest of this day. May you keep us is our prayer in thy arms. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>